0: Good evening, and welcome to Simply Jesus. Fantastic. Thanks. Now, at this time in Simply Jesus, we answer a question from uh, last month's um, Simply Jesus. Now, last month, uh, Peter Maycock spoke to us about the great exchange, about Jesus' death, picking up many of the points that we've just sung about in the last two songs. And if you've got a question arising out of this evening, can you please text it in? It'd be really good to get your questions. And then in September, when we come back again, we will seek to answer that question. So please text your questions in. And the question for this week, or this Sunday we're going to do, is did Jesus really believe his mission was to die for our salvation? Or was this something that the disciples decided sort of post-rationalized after he died. All right, so did Jesus really believe this is what it was all about or did it sort of go wrong? He was killed on the cross and everybody sort of worked it out afterwards. So let's have a look. We'll go back as usual to the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and just see what they tell us. So we're going to go to three different accounts of his life. The first one was recorded by a man called Luke. And um, let's just pick up the first one here. So this, a bit of context here, this happened when Jesus was a baby, he was being presented in the temple, and a a devout Jew called Simeon came up to his parents and said this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all the nations, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." He looks at this baby and he says, this baby is God's salvation. So his parents will have known there's something special about this baby to do with God's salvation right from the point he was born. Jesus will have grown up knowing this was his destiny. Let's look at another example. This is from Jesus' own lips in John, a very famous uh, passage, probably one of the most famous ones, quoted at lots of cricket and football games up on posters where people say, and here he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, referring to himself. All right, This is the Son he was referring to, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. Absolutely, Jesus, as he was talking to a Pharisee called Nicodemus, believed his mission was to give people eternal life. Absolutely, he recognized that what was forecast by Simeon was part of what he was there to do. But did it all go wrong when he was crucified on the cross? Did it not quite go to plan? Let's look at what Mark says a bit later on. Now, I picked this one in Mark. There's several other examples in different places. Mark says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Jesus knew this is what was going to happen. He knew this was his destiny. It was not an accident. Despite the fact that his followers didn't agree with him. They couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it. So this message of salvation is not an accident. It didn't come about because people made this up afterwards. It was absolutely part of Jesus' destiny. From the day he was born, throughout his mission, his ministry, right through to that point that he was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead. Thank you very much. And Nick, I think, is going to share with us a reading uh, in preparation for when Ian is going to come and speak to us.
1: So we're going to hear now from John's account of uh, the life of Jesus. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we're going to begin at the first verse of chapter 20. This um, chapter's headed the empty tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus's head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen finally the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside he saw and believed they still did not understand from scripture that jesus had to rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes but mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he'd said these things to her. as the father has sent me i am sending you and with that he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit if you forgive anyone his sins they are forgiven if you do not forgive them they are not forgiven now thomas called didymus one of the twelve was not with the disciples when jesus came so the other disciples told him we've seen the lord
2: At this point, we watched a video from the TV show America's Got Talent of the Illusionist and Bar Magician named Smoothini. Search YouTube for Smoothini to watch his amazing performance for yourself.
0: Smoothini! Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank
2: you. Good evening. They say, don't they, that seeing is believing don't know how you felt as you watched that video. I think there are two types of people in the world when it comes to uh, things like that, when it comes to things like magic. And I am one of those people that, you know, I am just quite content to sit back and enjoy the ride. I am just quite content to, to just watch it and take it for exactly what it is. But ultimately, in my mind, you know, I I know it's not magic. There is a rational part of me that's like, I know this is all about misdirection and sleight of hand and all of that stuff, but I don't care. (laughs) I'm quite happy to just sit back and enjoy the ride. And then there are those of us that just have to look at every single detail, and those of us that have to analyze it, and those of us who who just have to try and see how the tricks are done because although we're seeing, we we just don't want to believe it. We need to rationalize everything. And even as I I looked down this week on the the comments for that video on, on YouTube that we've just watched, it's full of those kinds of people. You know, the ones that just have to go. If you play the video at 0.25 speed and pause it at 2 minutes and 25 seconds, you'll see this or whatever. I was like, well, the point of it isn't that he does it at 0.25. That's not the point. There's even a link to another video in the comments that says, Smoothini's top tricks revealed. I'm just like, I'll get a life. Did you you have to spend time making a video? Oh, never mind. We live in a day and age, don't we, where we, we just don't take anything on faith anymore. Everything has to be tested. Everything has to be verified. If it seems impossible, then it probably is, and we simply won't believe it until we've checked it out and verified it first. We don't take anything on faith. Of course, the crazy thing about that statement is that we take stuff on faith all of the time. We just don't realize that we're doing it. All of us sat in this room have probably taken something on faith at least three, four, five, maybe six times just since this meeting started, and you've not even thought about it? I had a a, a sneaky look round as as people were coming in, and I didn't notice anybody come in this evening, choose which seat they were going to sit on, walk up to it, and then just check it to see if it was going to hold their weight. Nobody turned their chair upside down just to check that the legs were properly attached. You just walked in and you sat down. You had no idea that chair was going to hold your weight. But you took it on faith that it would. Because every other time you've walked into this building and you've sat on one of these green chairs, it's hold your weight. If you'd have done that, I would have thought you were mad. Because experience tells us that when we come into church and we sit down, the chair will hold our weight. We're going to be okay. This evening we're thinking about an event that seems to all the world to be impossible. An event that for 2,000 years people have looked at and have tried to discover how the trick was done. But that event that we're focusing on tonight isn't about sleight of hand. And it's not about misdirection. So what does it take? What does it take for us to believe something that seems impossible? Is seeing really believing? Or can we believe without seeing first? I want to pick up the story from last month and take a few seconds to remind us how we have got to this point. Jesus of Nazareth, a, a prophet, a rabbi, a, a good man who taught about the love and power of God, who, who performed miracles and who healed people. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He has been arrested. Uh, another of his friends denies knowing him. And he's been uh, tried in uh, A sham of a court, really, who had already made up their minds that he was guilty. He'd been mocked, and then he had been mercilessly executed by his enemies. And his remaining followers are left uh, cowering in fear. They're hiding behind locked doors. They're afraid to show their faces in public. Two devout Jewish leaders, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, have taken Jesus' body And they've laid it in Joseph's family tomb. Uh, The custom would have been to have covered the body with linen and spices and to seal it in the tomb for about a year. And then after a year or so, the remains would be taken and uh, transferred to a second, smaller, final resting place. And that should, by rights, have been the end of the story. The Jesus movement should have been over and yet within weeks the whole of that Roman colony is alive with thousands of new believers in Jesus pointing to an empty tomb and convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead and that they now can be freed from guilt and fear and death Far from the Jesus movement being over, instead it began to expand and it began to grow, so much so that 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem and 2,000 years later, here we are tonight, still talking about him. And we're not the only ones, are we? Today, the worldwide church contains 2.4 billion people, all who, as a central tenant of their faith, believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What makes these people believe not only in something they can't see, but in something that just can't be verified? Or can it? Is there any evidence at all to suggest that Jesus really rose from the dead? And I think there are a couple of uh, important things to consider here. Uh, The first is the fact that the tomb where Jesus is laid is empty. And that's not just something that uh, Christians say. Even non-Christian historians agree from their research of the historical Jewish text of the time, the tomb was empty. It's something that if you're in the legal profession, uh, lawyers would call common ground both friends of Christianity, uh, Christianity and enemies of Christianity would agree on that point. The tomb is empty. But how, do we, how do we explain that? And over the years, loads of theories have been put forward. The first is, well, perhaps, perhaps Jesus just wasn't dead. Perhaps they just kind of thought he was dead, and they took him back and they buried him, and a bit later he sort of got up and pushed the really heavy stone out from in front of it. The difficulty with that theory is that, well, the Roman Empire, they knew a thing or two about killing people. They were very good at it. And one of the standard practices as part of a crucifixion was to, uh, to break the victim's legs. Uh, essentially, uh, it helps to speed up the process. Uh, if you can't push up on your legs on uh, across, cross, uh, you can't get enough air into your lungs. you suffocate quicker, basically. But in John 19, it tells us that they, they didn't break Jesus' legs, because when they came to him, he was already dead. Uh, Instead, it says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. What we now know about the way that the body works is if the clot and the serum of blood have separated, then somebody is definitely dead. Jesus, before he was taken down from the cross, was dead. Other people have said, well, maybe, uh, maybe the authorities, after they buried Jesus, they, they moved the stone and, and they took the body away. Maybe the Roman authorities uh, took Jesus' body, which to me seems um, the least likely of all the possible explanations, because if if the Jewish or Roman authorities had taken Jesus' body, then the second they got wind that there was some talk that Jesus had risen from the dead, surely they would have brought out the body and said, no, he can't be risen from the dead because here he is. They would have shut down the uproar at the first possible opportunity, but that never happened. Thirdly, people argue, well, What if John and the other disciples, what if if they were just making it up? What if they took Jesus' body and they sort of hid it somewhere and then started a rumor that he was alive? I think there's a couple of things here. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 27, we're told that uh, the Roman governor, Pilate, he ordered a guard to be placed in front of the tomb for that very reason. So that nobody could steal the body. But more compelling for me, I think, actually, is that uh, the disciples, they just stuck to their story that they'd seen there isn't Jesus. You know, people will sometimes lie for something they believe to be true, but not for something not for something they've made up. Those first followers of Jesus, those earliest Christians, they were were willing to be fed to wild animals, they were willing to be sawn in half, they were willing to be put up on crosses and covered in tar and set fire to, but they absolutely and categorically would not deny that Jesus was alive. Why would you allow yourself to be put through that if you know that it's just a lie? The tomb is empty. The body is nowhere to be found. Jesus is no longer there. There doesn't seem to be any reasonable explanation for why that's the case, but more importantly, people claimed to meet with the risen Jesus. And the first person we see in that reading that Nick read from us from John 20 is Mary, one of Jesus' close followers she comes to the tomb on the Sunday morning and she discovers that the stone has been rolled away and Jesus's body is no longer there and she runs and she tells the other disciples Jesus other followers and two of them come down and they see that the tomb is empty as well and they don't quite understand what it means And as they go away Mary uh, hangs around contemplating what's going on and Jesus comes and he meets with her. But, you know, the testimony of one woman, one woman who, who really loves Jesus, you know, that's, that's a bit dodgy, isn't it, really? I mean, women, they don't have legal standing, do they? Well, at least they didn't here. Sorry, ladies, it's just how it was then. But it's not just one woman, is it? A short time later, Jesus uh, appears to the rest of the disciples, at least uh, some of them. And in, uh, in Luke's account of, of this meeting, um, they call him a ghost. They think he's a ghost. Until he picks up a piece of fish and starts eating it. And he says, ghosts don't eat, do they? <laughs> Effectively. And then there's Thomas. Thomas isn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appears to them. And, um, you know, I think Thomas gets a bit of a bad rap. He gets called the doubter. I think if somebody says to me, you know, "Our, our friend who we loved, who was recently executed, has come back from the dead, I think I doubt that too he says no i'm i'm not going to believe unless i can see him for myself unless i can touch him then i'm not going to believe you and jesus appears again the disciples uh, and thomas is with them and, and thomas reaches out and he touches him and he believes and those are just some the Gospels record 11 different occasions where various individuals or groups encounter the risen Jesus. How do we explain that? They can't all be hallucinating. The eyewitness uh, accounts to Jesus' resurrection, these are, these are different people of different temperaments in different places and, and different times. The way that we understand hallucinations work, that, that's just not possible. And more remarkable still, many, many thousands of religious Jews came to follow Jesus shortly after his death. They gave up uh, things like temple worship and animal sacrifice, uh, things that were profound and permanent distinctives of Jewish identity that they had fiercely guarded for centuries. How can you explain such a, a radical and permanent change to culture? unless the resurrection of Jesus is certifiable. You don't change your culture in such a radical way for a rumor, for a story that a few fishermen had made up to feel better about themselves. I am a bit of a Star Trek fan. I'm sorry about that. Uh, One of my favorite lines... In all of Star Trek, is when Mr. Spock, uh, the Enterprise science officer, declares to the bridge of the Enterprise, uh, an ancestor of mine once maintained that when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The funny thing, and the reason that I love that line, is the ancestor he's referring to Uh, he's actually quoting Sherlock Holmes. Well, I guess technically he's quoting Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the line for Sherlock Holmes, but anyway, you get my point. When I was in my teens growing up in in church and trying to decide for myself whether I really believed this stuff about Jesus' resurrection, this line had a, a profound impact on me. Because once I started to realize that the arguments as to why Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead just didn't hold up, I was left with only one reasonable conclusion, however improbable it seemed, that Jesus was alive, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then, if he was alive, and his offer of forgiveness and abundant eternal life, all the things that he promises in the Gospels, if all of that is is genuine and true then the fact that he's risen from the dead proved something to me about all that Jesus offers in terms of that forgiveness and that abundant life. And I stopped trying to see how the trick was done. And I decided to take uh, a step of faith and to believe. So I guess my question for us this evening is, is just that. Are you still trying to look and see how the trick is done? Or are you willing to follow in the footsteps of billions of others who have put their faith in a risen Jesus? What is there to stop you from coming and seeing for yourself? What is there to stop you from experiencing the full and abundant and eternal life that Jesus has promised to us?